Welcome to Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast from the Shakespeare and Music Study Group. My name's Michael Graham, and in this episode I'm joined by the exceptionally talented Jennifer Waghorn, a theatre history researcher and musician based in Stratford-upon-Avon. Jennifer is currently finishing her doctoral thesis at the Shakespeare Institute, looking at the original music of Shakespeare's theatre company, and composers who worked between the theatre and the court. Jennifer is also a theatre composer in her own right, and a musician and musical director. She's written music for around 30 productions, and has advised on music history for the Royal Shakespeare Theatre and The Other Place. She performs regularly in folk bands and as a solo singer-songwriter, and plays an amazing array of instruments, including violin, guitar, mandolin, accordion, piano, hurdy-gurdy and ribeck. Jennifer received the accolade of Stratford-upon-Avon Musician of the Year in 2018. Our conversation touched on a range of different topics, including the function of music in the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries, the dynamics of composer-playwright collaboration in early modern theatre, and parallels between early modern theatre and opera. We particularly discussed the lives and work of two composers Jennifer's researching for her PhD, John Wilson and Robert Johnson. We also covered Jennifer's experiences composing and performing her own Shakespearean music. Remember, if you'd like to find out more about the Shakespeare Music Study Group or join the group yourself, you can find us on our website, shakespeareandmusic.wordpress.com or on Twitter, at Shakesmuzz. But for now, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Waghorn, where I began by asking Jennifer about her journey with Shakespeare and music up to this point. I mean, with a lot of uh, Shakespeare stuff, I, I guess um, there's the really early side of things. So like my parents took me to an outdoor performance of Midsummer Night's Dream when I was a kid and there were sheep and uh, <laughs> things like that. Um, I, I remember when I was about 16 or 17 doing Twelfth Night at school and just getting really interested in the innuendo. And I genuinely <laughs> think that's what got me into Shakespeare. Uh, I had some really good teachers. So, so that's where the Shakespeare side of things came from I'd already started started getting into folk music as a teenager and somebody got me a CD called Elizabethan Street Songs which was from the Globe um, and I just loved it I don't know why there was something really rough and ready about it and I really liked that that style of early music that didn't feel uh, very sort of pure and precise and uh, so so that's that was sort of early on what got me interested I was already a violinist um, I've been playing violin since I was about five uh, and piano for a while and things like that. So I was interested in music from a practical performance side and uh, I was a bit of a drama queen. So I just, yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare was already there. Um, went to uni, did history at uni, looked at um, the supernatural in early modern drama for my undergrad dissertation, you know, tiny topic, it's fine. And my, <laughs> my uh, supervisor was great, uh, Tara Hamling. She got me interested in coming to the Shakespeare Institute where I'm currently doing my PhD, did my MA in Shakespeare, Stratford-upon-Avon and the Cultural History of Renaissance England. Uh, which is a, a great title. The acronym is Massacre. And, uh, <laughs> and on that, we did lots of work on different early modern um, kind of aspects of daily life. One of which was early modern music, which I, I got to study a bit with Dr. Jonathan Willis, who's a, a fantastic early modern scholar. And he supervised my dissertation for my MA on uh, early modern stringed instrument making and ownership particularly in a domestic environment. So kind of families turning uh, furniture, tables and things into stringed instruments, people knocking holes in their ceiling to fit massive double bases into their front rooms, things like that. Amazing. Uh, so, so I got really interested in the material culture of early modern England and, and uh, of music making. And the Institute has a really great community like a little postgrad community of students and uh, they have a company called the Shakespeare Institute Players and every year students put on a few different productions usually Shakespeare but quite a few others we've had things like the Night of the Burning Pestle, the Insatiate Countess some quite obscure early modern plays and uh, as an MA I'd, I'd kind of written 
few of my own songs. I'd sung in bands, I'd done things like that. And I decided to write music for the production of As You Like It they were doing, uh, which was quite a big undertaking because obviously there's quite a lot of music in that play. And I loved it. And I loved the collaborative part of it. Um, and just how the logistics and tackling the, the logistics and the creative um, side of it made me think about the plays in such a different way. So yeah, I just kept, I kept doing more, writing more music for plays. And my PhD happened because my now supervisor, Dr. Martin Wiggins approached me and, and basically said, he, he'd written this, he's still uh, publishing this, this catalog of early British drama, which details all the plays, all the props, everything you can think of really about the plays from uh, 1533 through to 1642. And as part of that, he'd developed a list of all the surviving copies of music manuscripts for the original music of the plays. He hadn't looked at them all, but he knew he'd kind of got this list of where they were. So he basically approached me and said, would you like to do something with these? Which is a huge gift <laughs> and mm. also quite a daunting one. So I was faced with all this material. Um, so yeah, all of that sort of clicked together. And I, I uh, have been living in Stratford-upon-Avon now for a few years so there is a lot going on really for a small town just to get involved in kind of Shakespeare and music as a, as a daily thing. Amazing it must be so nice to be right at the coalface and I guess in so many ways uh, I mean from actually living obviously in Stratford <laughs> where else would you want to study Shakespeare but also like you were saying you've just been given this this gift of, of all of these um, kind of manuscripts and it must feel really exciting to be the one that gets to explore them in depth for the first time, I guess, before before anybody else has. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing really, because they're, they're not, um, most of them aren't kind of never discovered before. I think that's one of the things with Martin's catalogue, uh, which we now call the Wiggalogue, um, <laughs> which in the course of, of putting it together, Martin's discovered some plays which were previously thought to be lost. But a lot of the information is is basically taking stuff we already knew from loads of different sources and putting it all in one place. So uh, fairly quickly, I could put together this list of um, all the plays with songs in. I say fairly quickly, like it took me a long time and I, I hopefully other people share my love of uh, spreadsheets because I have tons of massive <laughs> spreadsheets on music <laughs> databases. But So I've got a list of all the plays from about 1570 to 1642 with songs in them. Uh, whether the music survives or not. And I've been working on the plays uh, where we do have surviving music manuscripts from the point at which Shakespeare's uh, performing company, The King's Men, move into the indoors Blackfriars Theatre, just to narrow it down slightly. But uh, so some of the stuff I'm looking at um, maybe hasn't been looked at in quite that context before. Uh, a lot of the manuscripts that um, that I'm working with have been looked at, uh, particularly in the mid 20th century. But attribution studies has also come come on quite a long way since then. So reading some of that stuff is uh, is simultaneously really useful and and quite confusing when you realise that a lot of the plays have now been attributed differently. Um, I see. We know very different things about the company or, or perhaps about the composers as well. So. Uh, yeah, so it's it, it's a weird mix. It feels sometimes like it, it's that that sort of thing you dread as a PhD student of finding the books where somebody's covered your material already, but um, but really pulling as much new stuff out of a field that that um, that sort of sitting on this base of base of information and base of scholarship that maybe hasn't changed that much in the last fifty years. It feels like you're you're in a field that's quite. Uh, it's evolving quite quickly and mm -hmm. is quite um, reactive in the sense that 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 it, that it has to move with developments in in other fields. Is is what you're kind yeah. of saying there? And so, does this feel like a fairly new field, or are we talking going back centuries now with the study of music in Shakespeare's plays? So, in terms of research, in terms of Shakespeare and music research, I imagine it's. Uh, it, at least from from my experience of working on it, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, but perhaps perhaps the way we we view it as a as a specific strand of study has has changed um, more recently. It does mm -hmm. it does feel as though there's kind of a, a 
a conscious sort of strand of research. I suppose certainly if I'm talking about my research to people who don't look at Shakespeare and music, there's the the inherent feeling that um, you need a particular set of skills to understand. So obviously people assume you need to be able to read music, you need to be able to analyse music, which is true to an extent, but I do quite a lot of performance in my conference papers. I'll play somebody a piece of music or sing it and they'll see what I, they, they see quite quickly what you mean by things like tonal shifts or, um, you know, ascending scales and things are actually not that complicated when you, when you, when you kind of demonstrate. So, so I feel as though there's that that kind of um, assumption of specialism that uh, that can be isolating. Mm. I've also find it really interesting looking at what people are studying Shakespeare and music or um, music in early modern theatre, what they're studying it for. So quite a lot of the earlier research material, kind of if you look at the again earlier twentieth century stuff, maybe even late 19th century research of that early modern music, there are quite a lot of links to the birth of opera and, ah. um, and the fact that the music of this, the period I'm looking at has significance because it, it, it's kind of the starting point of uh, opera, at least from the, the English side of things. And so as somebody coming at it from a different, you may have a different opinion on this, uh, but as somebody coming at it from the other side, kind of from the, the earlier stuff and seeing it develop through, I, I find it interesting that a lot of that scholarship is focused on what's perceived as an endpoint of, uh, of researching that musical development. I suppose though, just that the question of what research is, is, is also, an interesting one. I think people have been adapting and engaging with the music in Shakespeare's plays for years and years. Like even um, while uh, the King's Men are still performing before 1642, they have revivals of their plays and they have rewrites of the music. So they're already rethinking what what the music and the plays looks like. Mm. Um, and even the act of compiling the music from those plays, a lot of which is done by Kingsman composer Dr. John Wilson, who pulls together his old Kingsman music and uh, the music of composers like Robert Johnson. Uh, he keeps the music for The Tempest that John, uh, Robert Johnson writes and, com and publishes it all in the 1650s, or at least publishes a bit of it. Uh, shows kind of a conscious effort to preserve and to to collate and to discuss that music as a as a kind of coherent body in a way uh, that's making a lot of uh, a lot of kind of reductive comments about about the nature of that but I suppose it's 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 research in its own way um, mm -hmm. there's so much in there that we that is fascinating and hopefully we'll now cover in the rest of the conversation because there's yeah. just so much of interest that I, I am particularly interested in that that was going to be one of the questions that I was going to ask was how it was linked to the development of opera. But I'm taking it from your um, answer there that you don't necessarily feel that it's necessarily helpful or it's it's a bit reductive to, to try to situate the music of Shakespeare's plays, which is obviously appearing around the same time as the birth of opera in the early 17th century. Mm. You don't necessarily feel that the two should be conflated um, or compared. I, I suppose it depends on the research strand you're most interested in. And I, I completely understand that um, it is a trajectory that's, that is of interest and of use. So I suppose it's just that my focus is a bit different. I, I find it really interesting seeing the ways in which composers and, and the, the um, playwrights as well pl are playing with shaping words and music and theatrical performance and the ways that, that, that those are developing. And I guess, I mean, Shakespeare, uh, like, I guess The Tempest is, is, is maybe an obvious starting point, but I, because I've been doing a lot of work on the 1610s at the moment, uh, John Fletcher does tons of stuff with, with music in his plays. And there's a play called The Mad Lover, which includes a musician character called Straymon. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Stremon, Stremon. And he has to put on a mask, a, a kind of court style mask. Um, so music and kind of theatrical performance that you'd usually see at court. He has to 
uh, stage a mask to try and snap a mad king out of his madness, which is uh, a bit of a task. And he has to coordinate other performers in this, so, so they have to pretend to be trees and animals and fantastical creatures. And Stroman plays Orpheus. And uh, Charon also appears, you know, the infernal ferryman. And they have what kind of reads as a recitative song. So Orpheus is singing about, essentially about the situation. They have a, a, a dialogue about whether this mad king will be allowed into paradise or not. Um, and Charon's saying no, because he's, you know, he's mad, it can't happen. So it's, it, it's sort of a really odd, um, it, it is quite, it's really quite unusual in the context of what I'm looking at. So I, I, mm. I do wonder with, uh, and particularly with that play, The Mad Lover, I've, I have found a lot of research talking about recitative and how that, that kind of develops. I wish, I wish the word was not so difficult to pronounce because I keep having to <laughs> say it for conferences and things. I'm sat at home saying the word recitative to myself over and over again. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's something that really interests me. I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a really fruitful course of study, but just as somebody whose brain maybe doesn't work in that direction, uh, it's interesting to see that, that line of research sort of um, barreling off into a, you know, in a direction that I'm maybe not taking at the moment. So, yeah, yeah the, the, the example that you've given there, it, it sounds like a really interesting example of operatic influence or some kind of cross-fertilization mm. and th there is re sort of research along these lines and almost imagining the tempest that you've mentioned as as a kind of pseudo opera I guess if you want to call it that it's Daniel Albright isn't it there's a book called Musicking mm. Shakespeare and he his introduction sort of talks about what if the tempest what if we could imagine the tempest as an opera what would it sound like because mm. it arrives at exactly this point in history um but i feel like that may, that may be a fairly big well, topic to grapple yeah uh, i mean there's also the there's that uh thing about the tempest being a musical as well i suppose partly mm. to to make it uh to put it in terms that perhaps yeah you engage with it in different ways um not that i would want to avoid studying the tempest but um <laughs> it, it's it's been inevitable that i've looked at it quite a lot uh, because of the field of research that I'm, uh, I'm in. And my PhD essentially works with the idea that when the King's Men move into the Black Prose Theatre, they have access to kind of new musical resources. Like they've got the acoustic space in that, that kind of indoor theatre for a start. Um, they also, uh, the, the venue has also been used for um, children's performances where there's been lots of music. They, there's also been the Black Friars musicians who have been seen as this, this really, uh, this great consort of musicians. And uh, so what I'm, I'm trying to argue is that the company as a whole have a sort of logistical drive to make themselves the musical adult company and the, the musical innovators in the theatre industry at the time. And because mm. Shakespeare is there, I don't want to say resident playwright, because that's a complicated term, but because Shakespeare is the playwright who is most closely integrated with that company sort of direction, it makes sense for something like The Tempest to really just maximize the use of those musical resources. And one of those, again, something I'm arguing, one of those resources is access to court composers uh, so enter Robert Johnson, who writes music for, for The Tempest. Why don't we use that as a <laughs> fantastic segue into this um, figure who a lot of your research, if I'm right, sort of revolves mm. around is the, the figure of, of Robert Johnson. And maybe um, you could just give us an introduction to Johnson and his protege, John Wilson. Am I using that correct? Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah he's kind so. of his protege. Yeah. So could you give us an introduction maybe to these two characters and and maybe just tell us a little bit about what the life of a composer, musician or a musician composer, whichever you want to, whichever way around mm -hmm. you want to put it. What, what was it like um, during um, the early 17th century, during Shakespeare's time? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question because Wilson and Johnson have quite different trajectories, at least based on what I, uh, on the kind of theories I've been developing. Uh, within the field that I'm looking at, I suppose Johnson has a relatively um, conventional 
start and development to his career. Um, he is an apprentice, uh, he's apprenticed, he's in the house of, and apologies in advance if I get these facts wrong off the top of my head, but uh, he's in the household of George Carey, who's uh, linked to, the, has links with the Kingsman uh, as the Lord Chamberlain later on, so there is already a Kingsman connection. Uh, but he's basically there for about um, seven years training in the household uh, as a musician. And once he finishes uh, that training, he's, uh, which is essentially in, as far as we know, in musical performance, and he's a, he's a lutenist and singer, it's harder to trace the composition side. So we don't necessarily know how much formal training he had in composition. He then has a relatively short wait, I think it's two or three years before he gets a court post. This is partly because his dad was a court musician and a lot of those court connections are quite family based. So John Dowland is, when he finishes, like he's a, he's a little bit older, but he and Johnson are basically uh, end up in their own kind of court musician loot department together. They're both paid <laughs> about the same amount. So yeah, probably, I mean, this is completely fantastical, but if they shared offices, it would just be those two sat together. Um, but Dowland has a, a wait, a, a much longer wait. He has to, he ends up going off to Austria for about seven years and coming back before he gets a court role in England. So Johnson gets in there quite quickly. Johnson is recorded as playing the fiorbo or the bass lute. And at the time, because that means you're doing a lot of continuo bass work, that uh, potentially tells us that he's already thinking about composition and about how the music is structured to be able to create that kind of to be able to anticipate and, and kind of lead the chord um, progressions basically for some of the music where those continuo bass parts aren't written out. So that's maybe some indirect evidence of his composing. Then um, he also becomes a, basically the loop maintenance man for the court. Um, he's the one who gets paid for strings and for, for any books and things like that or for, for instruments. And by the, by the early 1610s, he's, uh, he suddenly gets a little raft of mask um, commissions. So uh, there's a mask in 1610, I think, where he has to provide 42 lutes for a mask, which if you just imagine 42 lutes all playing at the same time in a room, if they were, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, I do have a theory that somebody is also sat there with a massive packet of strings just waiting for the strings to break in this really warm environment. Um, You'd need somebody on hand, wouldn't you? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know whether it's Johnson, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't envy him if it was. Um, so he suddenly gets uh, a few different commissions to write music for the dancers for, for masks and um, to arrange music that other people have written, uh, which again is quite common. You'd have somebody writing stuff out and then you'd have somebody arrange the music for the violins or arrange the music for the lutes. And this is around the same time that Johnson appears to start writing for the King's Men. Uh, and the King's Men have obviously been granted royal status by James I, which means they are the company who go in and perform, uh, probably perform the anti-masks as well as performing um, plays at court for, for kind of Christmas and the new year. So it's possible that they're in the room at the same time as Johnson for these masks and that's how the connection's made. It's possible that it's made through the Carey family. But this is when it, it seems as though Johnson makes that connection. Um, so we appear to, and again, this is a whole minefield of attribution, but we appear to have music for one of the songs from Cymbeline by Robert Johnson, which would be the first, uh, which would be early 1610. Then we have Winter's Tale and then we have The Tempest. And then Johnson continues to be involved with the company. Uh, he's then composing music for the Kingsman on and off through the 1610s and the 16, a little bit of the 1620s. And he dies in uh, 1633, 1632, 33. Before then, so that's his kind of trajectory with the Kingsman. He's composing other lute music as well. And his mask kind of output seems to drop off relatively quickly, although that might just be a lack of surviving material. And we have evidence that in the mid 1620s, he puts in a petition and he says, it's kind of his own words, he says, I've never asked for anything before, but one of the court composers for the court composer for the lutes uh, dies, has died, Thomas Lupo. Um, please, could I take his place? Uh, he doesn't have a composing job before this. He's still 
um, Lutonus to the king and to the prince, um, Lutonus to Prince Henry before he dies, and then Lutonus to Prince Charles, who goes on to be Charles I. And his request is denied, and the job goes mm. to the son of the old composer, who's actually a violinist. So um, I'm sure he's Italian, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so was the violinist. But uh, so again, it's that kind of family connections. Essentially, I guess what I, I'm trying to say on, on that front is that Johnson has what seems to be a really good lute career with the court. He's one of the highest paid uh, musicians. He's getting up to about £80 a year plus extra mass commissions. That's really good. Again, up with mm. Dowland, one of the highest, highest paid lutenists. And, and he's denied this composing job. And there's not that much evidence that he's given a, a specific professional composing outlet other than the king's men so so i think i i'd like to think he's kind of using the king's men as that creative outlet that he really wants to be able to put his composing into a performance environment and that's how he does it mm. uh, and and johnson also um it's not particularly unusual but johnson doesn't um get his own stuff published so everything we have of his is either in music manuscripts um that uh, survive which appear to be from people who are learning the songs there's maybe one or two degrees of separation from Johnson there are things like basically his colleagues uh, so like one of John Dowland's music pupils uh, so it, it looks as though she's been given Johnson's music to learn she's written it down as a kind of memorial exercise and uh, and that's how we have it uh, and there are a few songs that, that survive in, in multiple sources there are some that only survive in one so it's quite tricky to tell sometimes how far that, how close that is to the original. And as I, I mentioned before, there are also some bits of Johnson's music that survive because John Wilson writes them down uh, and they are, they do have that company connection. So again, tracing him is quite strange as a composer and a performer. I'll, mm. I'll, try, and, I'll try and get Wilson done slightly quicker because there's less stuff written on Wilson, I think. I think because partly because of the Shakespeare connection with Johnson. There's a lot mm. of interest in it, particularly again in the Tempest. But with Wilson, um, he comes in slightly late. He's a little bit younger um, at that point when the Kingsmen are looking for composers. And he's seen as having, a, like in a, a few different contemporary accounts of him, there's a, an account by a violinist called Anthony Woods, like quite a long time later in the 1650s. Um, Wilson survives for quite a long time, so he's still banging around by then. Um, and it describes his style as really curious. He's also a lutenist and singer, but they're basically saying he's got a really weird style. We like it. The king likes it. The king is, is by that point, Charles I, just before he got his head uh, chopped off, it is a huge fan of John Wilson's playing style, but it's quite strange. So um, just taking him back to when Wilson starts, we don't know for sure, but um, there is a record of a Jack Wilson singing the role of Balthazar in Much Ado About Nothing. And this, this is almost certainly got to be a revival of Much Ado About Nothing before the first Shakespeare's first folio is printed. Uh, it's not from the original. And uh, there's kind of this point of contention about whether John Wilson is the Jack Wilson, whether the two people are the same. And again, like we were saying about the crossover between different disciplines, at the mm. Institute, we've been working recently on uh, a play reading marathon of all Shakespeare's plays and all the King's Men plays specifically in chronological order, uh, looking at the company development and who's working with the company and who might have played the roles in each play. And what we've seen, that a lot of this, again, is tied to Martin Wiggins' research, uh, and it started with looking at apprentices and how many apprentices you have. And the company seems to have four apprentices up to a particular point in the kind of 1610s-ish, when they suddenly have um, more apprentices than they've ever had before. They've got like eight. Um, and there aren't enough roles for all these apprentices. If the apprentices are playing boys and women, and uh, the name Wilson appears as one of these apprentices. So we've been working uh, on this, it's kind of been figuring out what these other apprentices could be doing. And my theory is that Wilson is brought on as an apprentice to be trained up on the music front and possibly to be trained up as a composer. 
Ah. which would explain why he doesn't get the roles, partly because there, there just isn't the space for him to be offered more than kind of specific singing roles. Mm. Um, when, he, when he comes on board, again, this is, this is kind of fairly fresh research, but um, he'd maybe be playing Juno or series in uh, The Tempest. So basically just comes on stage, sings, leaves, <laughs> and he's quite <laughs> young at this point. He'd be a teenage apprentice. So he'd be, if he is the apprentice with the Kingsman, he's um, going to do a seven year apprenticeship with them starting around 1610. So yeah, if Johnson's working with the company, that means, uh, and that's why when you're calling Wilson uh, Johnson's protege, it's a really interesting idea because Johnson mm. isn't formally connected to the company, but he would seem like the most likely person to work with Wilson. And if the dating of the music we have is correct, there are um, plays in the 1610s, things like The Witch or Valentinian, where Robert Johnson and John Wilson both write music for the same play right so it's okay. possible that that robert johnson is working with wilson um and he's separated out the di different kind of types of songs and he said here you can write this one i'll write these basically so that's 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 the theory i'm working with on wilson at the moment that he's trained up within the company mm. so see. you can tell i've spent a lot of time with these guys <laughs> <laughs> sat in so, my office with yeah. they feel like they feel like friends now sort of like you, yeah. you know them personally we've, yeah. got, <laughs> we've got a lot more on wilson's personality he just seems like a bit of a bonkers um <laughs> sort of uh, guy there's a great picture of him looking very cavalier-y with a big hat and a feather in it um i think i especially end up being a bit evangelical about the not the post shakespeare king's men stuff and mm. the music because there's so much there and shakespeare is is not the tip of the iceberg. He's embedded somewhere in the, the iceberg of early uh, modern drama and the music you find in it. So I see, and maybe, maybe we should just talk a little bit about the sort of function of music in Shakespeare's plays. And from mm. from what you've just from what you've just said, um, do, do you feel that it's kind of consistent with his contemporaries, or do you think that the way that music is used in those plays is is slightly different i don't know if you want to just mm. talk about generally the function of of music in shakespeare's plays and any differences then yeah i mean i i suppose it's the standard thing where i uh having come at early modern drama from a shakespeare perspective i'm very paranoid about using that shakespeare lens um and trying to play off the shakespeare was unique nobody else was doing this or shakespeare does it better than anyone else against what is happening? Uh, what are other people doing? How much evidence do we have? Because I suppose on the, I mean, at least on the music front, but also on the play front, just the stuff we have that survives, like Shakespeare is quite a big proportion of it, relatively speaking. Proportionally, a lot fewer of the Kingsmen's non-Shakespeare plays survive in comparison and, and on the music front, I guess, as well, because people have been able to trace that music uh, because they, they know what the words look like. Or, uh, so that's difficult in a way. I think, again, because my, because my research more recently has been looking at that 1609-1610, later Shakespeare, when Shakespeare is, is starting to collaborate more with Fletcher, um, it's quite tricky to say because some of the, uh, certainly the, the later plays with Fletcher, like the Two Noble Kinsmen, the scenes with more music in are Fletcher's. So I suppose some of it, like I've, I've said about The Tempest maybe being the prime point where the king's man can say right write something that will show off our music and show off mm. our performers and show off our space that's something that shakespeare can do because he has that company link that perhaps other people can't do and i suppose it links back to that on the music front again it's something i've been thinking about a lot about that casting idea and the company coherence if you're a, a playwright who's writing specifically for one company and it's a solid gig and you know the people you're writing for and you know you'll always be writing for them it's quite different to pretty much everyone else where you're, you're hoping that the company will pick up your play or um, you're writing for different people every time. So I suppose that's part of it, I think, that, that the way that Shakespeare uses music can be a bit more grounded in what the company have. Um, mm. In terms of what Shakespeare does with music in the plays, there's so much stuff. Uh, I did a, a few years ago, I, I put together an online exhibition for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and I was trying to figure out ways that you could, ways of breaking it down that would be more accessible. And I ended up with love, sorrow, 
magic and revelry. And I don't know if there's still useful ways to look at it, but essentially um, that music, I, I think above anything else, music in Shakespeare's plays is inherently affective, that it, it's always doing something to people, um, to the people on stage and kind of to the audience as well, just because they're in the same space. So it's love, sorrow, magic, magic and, and revelry. revelry. And again, they're really reductive, but essentially the idea that music um, can make people fall in love or enhances mm. people's feelings of, of being in love or is an, an expression of love. So things like, uh, it doesn't always work, so things like wooing songs is quite a big example. Uh, sorrow, so um, laments and people grieving. So fear no more the heat of the sun in Sibylline is a possibly a spoken song, but still grief, uh, Desdemona's um, Willow song, things like that. And um, under sorrow, there's also the idea of madness and, and music as um, an expression of social disconnect. So if you come on stage and you're singing and it, it doesn't suit your social status, it's, it can perhaps be assumed that you're not functioning under the, the social norms. Uh, magic, music, supernatural powers, so either magical characters or kind of divine interventions. So Pericles is quite a good example of um, uh, Pericles can hear the music of the spheres, immediately falls asleep and the, the, the goddess Diana appears to him. Or in Julius Caesar, um, Brutus, it, it's slightly different where Brutus is lulled to sleep by the music, but the music within the play creates this kind of effect where the audience can understand it as a sort of gateway for Caesar's ghost to then appear. Then obviously you get things like fairy songs and um, expressions of magic and supernatural identity through through song. Uh, and then revelry being things like drinking songs. So mm. uh, again, people sing when they're drunk or um, Iago, when he's trying to manufacture revelry um, with the soldiers, has let the kind of king clink as sort of a way to try and um, rev up the atmosphere. So those are sort of some of the big functions of, of music and the way Shakespeare uses them, I think anyway. Mm. Um, and Shakespeare writes his own stuff, he writes his own lyrics. He also draws on tons of popular songs from the period. And I suppose just to yeah, go back to the other one, are other people doing that? Well, because I think that effective power of music is something that is generally considered something that an audience would understand like that's not Shakespeare's creation that's that, that's something that Shakespeare's using as a dramatic tool that is also used by other people um, I would try and think of some really good examples but just on the the other side of Shakespeare using existing music and popular music kind of to signify things there are definitely other people doing that uh, mm. the best example is the Night of the Burning Pastel by Francis Beaumont which has 40 songs in it most of which are existing songs, most of which are sung by one character. Um, we performed Night of the Burning Pestle in 2016. I wrote a lot of music for it. And the poor guy, <laughs> Alex Tom, who played Mary Thought uh, and had to do basically sing all these songs. It does show how, just how intrinsically musical Beaumont must have been as a person just to be able to make those connections and work them in. So, mm. so on that front, Shakespeare is definitely not unique. I, I, I suppose it's just the, that we're aware of that breadth of, of Shakespeare's use of that dramatic tool mm. um, that really makes it stand out. So there's no sense that, as you were saying, that um, the music in Shakespeare's plays is more experimental because he's working with a composer who has a solid gig and therefore can, can take more mm. risks. Um, that, that's not necessarily true. There are other playwrights and the composers that they're working with who are doing equally innovative or interesting things. I think I think that particular circumstance of a composer who um, Shakespeare seems to work well with, as far as we can tell, at least in order for the Tempest to rely that heavily on on the composed music as such a big part of the the plot and um, characterization and everything else suggests that he did have a good working relationship with Johnson. I'm not uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily very easy to find elsewhere, but it does happen within the company later with other writers. So as I say, Fletcher does quite a lot of work with Johnson as well, like possibly more work because he has a longer period of time to do it um, after Shakespeare dies. It, other, other people also really do engage with, with music. So Middleton's very good at 
taking not only writing songs, but also recycling other people's songs and recycling his own songs in plays as well. There's a, a play he writes called The Widow, where uh, he mentions a song, which is actually one of his own in a different play and says, well, everyone already knows this one, so I won't bore you with that. And then it's still that. So there are definitely other composers using Robert Johnson specifically. I suppose the biggest, uh, on the music front, in terms of using music for the company in the space, like the biggest obvious parallel um, are the children's companies who are inherently founded in a lot of cases on a choral tradition and on music training. And a lot of them have, pretty much all of them have, essentially a, music, a musical director who's often the composer as well. So those plays have tons of music in, uh, not saying that the adult companies don't have any, but just that it's it, for a, a longer period of time um, and kind of, you know, pre-1600s, they already have that going for them. Marston in particular, who I, I've, I've been looking at a little bit, has tons of music in his plays and is very prescriptive about exactly the kind of music he wants, about the instruments he wants in those plays. So it's uh, Antonio Melida, um, I think Sophonisper as well, have, have really clear directions about the music. So Shakespeare's definitely not the only one in a position to be writing music for the company. It's maybe, I, I think where it's more unusual is, is kind of that adult company connection. But other, other companies do have strong musical presences. Um, there's a, it's an unpublished thesis, but... Um, Dr. Liz Cattero wrote her thesis on the music of the Admiral's Man and mm. all the different things that that company are doing with music. So there, there is tons of stuff in it. I think it, I mean, it's reductive to say only Shakespeare, um, only this company, but uh, yeah, I suppose it's a matter of perspective. And the body of, the body of work that's been done on Shakespeare's approach to music and the, the kind of unpackability of all that, that different work. Hmm. I, I'm taking it from your last answer that there's not an awful lot of documentary evidence about Shakespeare's actual relationship with the composers that he worked with. This is, I guess, an unanswered or an unanswerable question about how mm. they ha how they collaborated or the kind of conversations that were were happening what the power dynamic, I guess, was like, yeah. who had the most authority and, and that yeah, kind that's of thing. A, it's, again, a lot of the most fascinating questions, <laughs> the, the least answerable. Um, I, I guess some of it that I've been trying to work on is how much you can tell from, from the words and from the music and how, so artistic, on the artistic level, how closely they're connected, um, certainly with... Fletcher there are songs that don't really work just as lyrics on their own like the the meter is very irregular um there are kind of weird onomatopoeic sounds and things and they only meant make sense when they're put with this the, the setting um I guess it's not necessarily the same with Shakespeare but basically that that I think that tells us that Fletcher is working closely with somebody. Maybe, I mean, again, we don't know how often they might have met up, but it suggests that the composer already knows what the context of the scene is, what the words are, what they're not just composing for a set meter and, and kind of a set uh, framework of words. With Shakespeare, I think it's slightly harder to tell. There are some instances where you, you can tell that the words and the, the music fit together really well, um, but that doesn't necessarily tell us much about them working together. So yeah, mm. it's a, that's the artistic side. Logistically, I've been doing a reasonable amount of looking at um, maps and trying to figure out where the composers were based, how often they would maybe come into the theatres, how much time they actually had in a day if they if you say Robert Johnson has a couple of different court posts how much time can you physically spare to get to wherever the king's men are having their discussions about the plays or where whether wherever Shakespeare's working and actually sit down and have that conversation how long do you need and how long does it take to compose a song mm. um I suppose the only other thing logistically that I've been working on recently is Cymbeline because we have the one song by Robert Johnson, Hark, Hark the Lark, which seems to be composed by him early, you know, one of the earliest songs he'd have written for the company. And then we have Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun, which is a spoken song. And that doesn't appear 
anywhere else certainly not in Shakespeare it doesn't seem to there don't seem to be any other songs to be spoken in early modern drama that I can find or my supervisor can find and I've been playing around with the idea that it was meant to be sung um, and again this is not it's one of those things that I cannot prove but if it was meant to be sung then why wasn't it composed why wasn't that music composed and there's that possibility that because around the same time, Johnson suddenly has a lot of mask work to do. He runs out of time. The company get in touch with him too late and he can only do one song. He can do the standard wooing song for one performer. He can't do the duet for two performers where he maybe needs to know the relative ranges. Um, it's a harder song. It's metrically more, more difficult. It carries more emotional weight than the play. The other theory is that maybe there was another composer that was asked to do it. Maybe they're trying somebody else out and they, they can't do it or the company don't like the piece of music. Mm. Uh, and whatever it is, Shakespeare is left without the song and has to decide whether to cut it completely or just have it spoken. So I guess logistically, I, that's something I find really interesting where you, you're basically taking the play text that you've got um, and you're taking the musical notes that you've got written down and you're trying to, you're trying to extrapolate that. <laughs> Maybe that panic in the writing room of, oh God, we've got, you know, a lead in time of, of four weeks and we don't, we don't have it. The mask lead in mm. times are usually about six weeks, I think. Um, so Johnson already knows he's not free from this point to this point. But that's something that's come about again because my supervisor works a lot on chronology and on just how much time Shakespeare takes to write a play when the musicians or when the composers get involved, which looks as though it's pretty close to the, you know, maybe a few weeks out from the play. Although again, that's something that we're still in the process of trying to pin down. But so yeah, there's so much logistically, it would really help if, uh, if we had more company records that survived or more records about obviously about Shakespeare, but about Johnson and Wilson and the way they wrote, wrote as well. So it's sort of like modern day films where the, the, the composer gets brought in very, very close to the, the completion of the, the, whole, the whole process. Possibly. Yeah, I guess the other thing is, um, and again, this is something I, I wouldn't be able to comment on very much at the moment, but just what the musicians do with it when they get it. And that whole idea of rehearsal and how much time you need and whether anything can be changed. Or I'm also trying to look in some cases at the relative ranges of the music and how advanced technically some of the music is. And based on the performers and, and the other roles that they're playing, like how, how difficult those pieces are for them. Mm. <laughs> so it's again, it's one of those things where you end up, you end up in a big web of uh, conjectural thoughts, but but it's something that, that I, I feel as though, again, as part of that research community, the non-music side of it, where perhaps a few years ago, it would just have not been, it's just a body of work that's so big to try and unpick that you just don't go there. And now it's actually at least worth having a stab at that mm. logistical side. It's funny from what you're saying, it's sometimes the temptation might, to be, might be to look for kind of deep aesthetic or artistic reasons why, pieces of music in the theatre are written as they are or, or why they don't exist and what were the reasons mm. for them not existing but actually it just boils down to logistics or having a certain performer uh, the practicalities mm. of being a working <laughs> theatre company it's it's interesting is, is that as a sort of working composer yourself and a, a composer of, of Shakespearean music do you feel that that side of things being aware of the the nuts and bolts of putting together a, a theatrical performance. Do you feel that makes you more alert to, to that side of things within, within your academic work? Yeah, and I think it's partly why I'm interested in it, kind of, or how I got into thinking about it like that. Um, and I guess it's not one or the other, and, and that's true at any point, that it's not just the logistics and the, the, the budget and the who's in the room, but it is also the we really want to make the artistic impact here. We want to show off these things or again with the playwrights or the composers, we want to make people feel and we want to make them feel this emotion at this point and connect that to, to what's happening in the rest of the play. So that's always a really important thing. I, I suppose it's just easier in a way to accept that there are these practical parameters. Mm. 
so Shakespeare isn't just an isolated genius pulling um, magical islands out of his head, that the magical island is populated <laughs> uh, by his colleagues and that he's got to make that work. Um, and yes, like I, I suppose from the composing side of things, you're always, it, I, I, I assume other people find this, but whenever you're doing something creative, it always makes, it's always so much easier to work in, within a framework that you have some parameters on what you're doing. You have a creative brief. You do have that logistical brief as well and you make them both work. Um, I mean, again, on the nuts and bolts side of it, quite a few bits of composing I've done have been for performers who are maybe less confident in their singing. Some roles where people have been cast for their acting ability and they can sing, but they're maybe not as confident or they're worried that their range is limited. Uh, I've done a bit of composing for community theatre as well. So I wrote a musical um, based on Twelfth Night called V for the Alcola Theatre uh, a couple of years ago. And for that, the performers were all kind of 16 to 20, oh, 13 to 25 year olds. And some of them were, some of them had great voices and they weren't good at acting or they weren't as strong at the acting or not as confident. So we really bigged up their music side of things or vice versa. Yeah, and you, you may be aware as you're writing stuff of maybe I should give them a really clear starting note here um, and a really clear tempo. Maybe I, I can give this person an unaccompanied song because then they don't have to worry about the tuning. Maybe I won't make them do a massive octave leap to a belt note there because that's not fair. Mm. Um, or again, the, the, the opposite, if they're really good, then you say, right, well, we're going to use that. Um, give them something to show couple, off. Yeah, there were a couple of kids who who had these amazing voices that they'd they'd done a lot of um, gospel singing, and it's not something that I'm as uh, I love it, but I'm I'm not as used to composing uh, in that style. And so I just said, right, well, we'll just let's sit down and just hear what you want to do, and we wrote it in. Um, yeah, so I suppose it's it, it it's that kind of thing as well of of using what you've got in the best possible way, mm. and and knowing that to some extent everybody does that and it creatively it's it's kind of the best way to work i'd love to talk loads more about your compositions for um shakespearean <laughs> performance i feel we'd be here for, for about another hour or so i reckon if we um did but is there is is there any maybe a particular production shakespeare production that you've worked on that stands out to you um that has been a a, a really kind of inspiring piece to work on for you um, mm. as, as a composer and maybe as a secondary question whether there's any particular song or a character that you've just really enjoyed engaging with and composing for oh, oh that's such a good question and I, I don't have one answer so it's terrible I think uh, The Tempest has been the one that has been in my head the most recently. Um, I, I wrote the music for that in 2016 um, and I went back over, over the music for that, for this this talk I did. And there's something about, I mean, there is just something about like pulling an island together and we, we basically did it all with an accompanied song. And I love writing, I just love writing harmonies and again, pulling pulling those around depending on who you've got performing. So. That was great fun. I, as a, like performatively, I, I wasn't, The Tempest didn't used to be one of my favorites and kind of, I was aerial in that performance. And mm. as a character, it was great fun. Get some I great bet. speeches. It's a lot of work. Like you're, I mean, I was on stage pretty much the whole time at the top of a stepladder trying not to drop my violin, but um, it was great. <laughs> the things you do uh, for your art, right? Yeah, I was in like a flame colored, skin type bodysuit because apparently <laughs> the director decided just having body paint was probably not a good idea um, <laughs> and I had like this my hair was stuck up in this big orange spike it was great it's not really the music but it was just fun it was a great great fun role to play great interactions with um with the other characters in the play loads of different types of music like there's drinking songs there's the sort of ethereal songs we had um duets the spirits i had two fantastic classically trained singers as, as the, the two spirits alexi way and elizabeth Lutman. um so that was great it was like a mask dance um we had everybody singing to be this whole island singing uh we threw in some random 
you know, pop culture references. Like I think Stefano the Drunken Butler came on singing My Heart Will Go On just after he came <laughs> off a shipwreck, which is a bit awkward. Um, so yeah, I suppose I've, that is probably my obvious answer. But in terms of characters, like the three, I guess the three most musical Shakespeare ones are Feste, Autolycus and Ariel. The, yeah, Twelfth Night, Winter's Tale and um, <laughs> The Tempest. And I've always loved Feste. I think Feste is one of my favourites. And doing the music for Twelfth Night was great because Feste had, uh, had this little band of musicians. And just having, um, we had a clarinetist, trumpeter, a couple of guitarists. Um, I was doing some fiddle work and singing. Uh, and it's just really nice to have. I just love on stage bands. I mm. love it when, when you have live music and you have that feeling in a room where the people there could just erupt into this noise at any time and it's obviously tightly rehearsed and everything but there's something really nice and and kind of relaxed about it so yeah that as well that that particular production we had uh, an a cappella sung version of Oh Mistress Mine in like seven, I think it was seven, eight, it was seven, eight, five, eight alternating at first. It's <laughs> just confusing. Uh, that's why you shouldn't compose in the shower. And we did uh, a song called Come Away Death, which is, mm. you know, it's meant to be this big lament, but the guy playing Orsino, Orsino requests this song to listen to because he's feeling super sort of emo. And, and the guy playing Orsino, Charlie Morton, decided he was going to act like he'd just listened to this song a hundred times in his bedroom and was like singing, dancing on stage to it. And so trying to sing like this big power ballad while someone is mouthing the song at you, doing all these terrible dance moves was so difficult. Um, <laughs> that's so much fun. So yeah, I guess that's, the, that's the, again, that's, that's bringing the company thing back into it. But So I guess I'd say Twelfth Night and The Tempest. So there, there's a couple of different, couple of different things. It's been such a, such a privilege to work on Shakespearean music and to get to play it and perform it and mm. do it with so many wonderful people as well. And a whole lot of fun by the sounds of it as well. Thank you um, very, very much for that, Jen. I just have one final question, which I always try to ask just before we finish up, which mm. is for somebody who's new to this topic of, in your case, music in Shakespeare's plays, where should we start reading? And if we can, where would be a good place to start listening as well? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really tough one. Because I was going to say the best place to start is watching a play if you can watching it online and just having a think about what that music is doing in whatever it doesn't even have to be Shakespeare but just starting to think about how people create worlds with music uh, and places to start for for this kind of stuff I mean uh, again partly because I'm biased but uh, if you can access it, if you're an academic and you can access my supervisor's big catalogue of British drama just flicking through that you just see the range of different songs in it um, and uh, the performers, things like that, um, and, and different, the different plays. Could you just remind us of your supervisor's name very quickly? Dr. Martin Wiggins, um, the catalogue of early British drama. Um, the Wigography, is that what it's called? The Wigalogue, and the it's in, associ <laughs> in association with Catherine Richardson as well. Okay. The most obvious book, the best starting place is David Lindley's Shakespeare and Music. Brilliant. That is a really good starting point. And then if you want to get a taste of uh, other stuff, Shakespeare Music and Performance, which is also David Lindley and uh, Bill Barclay, is a, a recently published one, kind of looking at things like the Globe performances, composers' experiences, working on films, things like that. So that's got quite a nice range of different chapters. Mm -hmm. um, and on the music front, I guess just uh, if you want to look for specifically for the theatre music, maybe just have a look at what different companies have recorded um, of their own live music, because I find it really interesting trawling through stuff that um, I wouldn't necessarily listen to otherwise. It's quite tricky listening to it out of context. And there is music by uh, Robert Johnson out there. There's music by John Wilson. A lot of it's just on YouTube. Uh, there are also some fantastic early music groups. Uh, there's a, a really good group called Passamezzo with Tamsin Lewis, uh, who I've worked with before, who is wonderful. And they, they do a lot of early, uh, early modern music and a lot of theatre music as well. 
So that's sort of a vague thing. And, and I should probably do a little plug that I play with a band called The Company of Players and they've written songs inspired by Shakespeare's plays. And there's a really weird sort of mix. It's a great mix of things. There's like a song um, with the speech from Sir Thomas More in there. There's stuff inspired by history plays, by Hamlet, by comedies so yeah there's so much stuff out there so um check out the company players uh company of players i should say that's the one and also um i would say as well um if you want a great introduction to the music in shakespeare's plays then there's your um shakespeare birthplace trust uh videos oh, which yeah. are yeah, brilliant Thanks. brilliant to, <laughs> to watch through as well but thank you for a fantastic conversation um today jen that was really really brilliant Sorry, thanks so much, Michael. I can't wait to hear the, all of these. It's such a great, great idea for a series as well. And it's really nice to chat to somebody who's also in that that corner of the Venn diagram, but working on something really different as well. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, no, it was great. Really lovely to talk to you um, today, Jen. Thanks.